Hi, this is Dylan Gautier of Marley Verum. Welcome to Dawn River Radio. Tonight, I'm going to be speaking with Daniel Rothstein. Daniel is an artist, writer, and cartographer based in Toronto. His work examines our relationships to the places we inhabit. He's an admirer of public libraries, malls, and strip malls, and his projects seek to understand and support the diverse settings of the city's public life. But first, a power outage in downtown Toronto left the offices of Canada's top businesses in the dark on Thursday for about eight hours. Officials said the outage was caused by a large crane that struck a high-voltage transmission line earlier in the day. The incident forced the evacuation of one of the city's biggest shopping malls and caused some businesses to be locked. Don River Radio. We respectfully acknowledge that the sacred lands through which the Don River flows are the traditional territories, homelands, and Nenegat of the respective First Nations, Matisse Nations, and Inuit who are the longtime stewards of these lands. We acknowledge that Toronto is built on occupied Indigenous territory, the traditional homelands of the Wendat, Patun First Nations, the Haudenosaunee, and the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Tonight I'm recording this intro from Long Island Sound on Fishers Island in New York State, the traditional territory of the Mohegan, Meshantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, and Lenape peoples who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. Here we go. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. I think just to start, I'll have you introduce yourself and we'll sure. go from there. Sure. My name is Daniel Rothstein and my art practice is the urban geographer. Thanks so much, Daniel. I'm really thrilled to get to talk with you today and having just a hot snippets of conversation with you over the past few months. I knew I wanted to reach out and have you talk about what you've been working on and what your interest and focus has been in particular on the waterfront, but I think more generally thinking about mapping the world of geography and knowing place. So I thought maybe to kick us off, if you wanted to just talk a little bit about the urban geographer, your project, how it evolved and, and where it's taken you now. I've always had a love of geography, maps, place. And I grew up in Toronto and my dad used to take me on these really long bike rides throughout the city and down the Don River, up the Humber. And I just remember he's a wealth of knowledge in terms of architecture and urban planning and all that. He's an insolvency lawyer, so doesn't practice professionally in, in that regard. But I remember him on these bike rides, just pointing out all this stuff and one ride in particular along down the Don and then up through the city, through the Portlands, the distillery, Corktown, Regent Park, Cabbage Town, St. Jamestown, Rosedale, like this transect, this one line through the city and how many experiences were throughout that one route really boggled my mind. And I think oh, has always stayed with me as like, the city is so rich and complex and it can be a wilderness, it can be a concrete jungle, it can be mansions, it can be impoverished and the contradictions of the city and also urbanity as that magic sauce that everything works together. And of course, it works less well and more well sometimes. But yeah, so I went to school at McGill and I studied geography, I studied art history, and I moved to, after Montreal, I moved to Halifax and lived in the north end of Halifax and got to know lots of artists and activists who, who demonstrated to me like that you could be an entrepreneur, be an artist, center a positive worldview. And that was really inspiring. And I, I have this irrational love of Toronto. So I returned here despite it being like 
a hard place to be in many ways. It's the financial capital of Canada. Money talks, money listens. I didn't, having grown up here, I didn't quite know. I didn't, hadn't found my people yet, but having lived in other places in Canada and returning to Toronto, I had more pathways to other artists and people living in different ways in the city. And I did a residency at Artscape Gibraltar Points. And for three months, it was a work exchange. And just living on the island, I was also working at Evergreen Brickworks as a community garden animator. So my whole life was like taking, biking across the island, taking a boat, and then biking up the valley. And I was just in this kind of like ecological sub-city. Anyways, and in the Toronto context, it's a fascinating place because it's so rich in its history and culture. And like, it's had such a long, like so many strange things have happened here as any big city, but somehow there's an amnesia here. There's like a, a willingness to forget. There's a, there's like... Things don't stick in memory here. I think in other cities, maybe I'm romanticizing from afar, but just like New York and London and Amsterdam and Paris, and there just seems to be a greater literacy over what's happened here, how we got here. Whereas in Toronto, it just feels like there's always this, I owe it to the colonial context, the cultural genocide, the fact that it's this economic imperial outpost. And it's always reinventing itself to poise itself to the next economic wave. And what happens is everything's can be erased. There's a sense of urgency to my work in that regard, that I'm just here with many others in the city who care about it, who want to tell its stories, ground people and feeling connected to the place. And I think that sense of connection leads to is like greater care. One of my projects was illustrating a map of the 401. The 401 is our main highway artery. It's the busiest highway in North America. 18 lanes at certain points. And it's the worst place in the world. I've never been more of an upset person than if I'm stuck in traffic on the 401. But yet people spend hours of their life there. And so the project doing like a loving hand-drawn map of the 401 and asking people to put post-it notes of their memories of the highway and just like collectively acknowledging that we live in this place. And the first step to loving a place is to recognizing it. I think, as you were saying, Bill, in, in your investigations of the dawn, like you're interested in the parts that are been neglected because they're the parts that need the most attention. And there's definitely a, what's the word I'm looking for? Humanistic approach. Like a lot of my work is about like world betterment. So Despite my intense cynicism, I remain naive and optimistic. Something you were talking about, about a kind of a city with a maybe a kind of desire to not remember or in following the money, there's this inbuilt kind of mechanism for erasing what was. And I would say that I think New York has a fair share of that. And there are stories that get remembered and popularized. And then there's a lot that's really not known or thought of or you'll mm -hmm. explain like something like uh, Lincoln Center and the raising of the neighborhood that, that they had to tear down to build that, that cultural center and the kind of cultures that were like displaced and people know nothing about it. So I think, yeah, there are these pockets of a, a willed or a willful kind of misremembering or obliterating. It was interesting in exploring Toronto and the waterfront that similar to New York, thinking about how much of that area that now faces the lake was completely human-made and filled, mm -hmm. land-filled and thinking about just where that edge has crept out or encroached upon the lake. And it's really interesting to, to think about the movement around the Don River right now. The Don feels like the lesser known or the lesser remembered river. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. One thing about Toronto's geography is that 
the, its main feature beyond the island and the lake is its ravines and the ravines are sunken below the city streets. And that's the result of uh, the gridiron plan that was imposed on the Toronto landscape drawn up in England and without really knowing the nuances of the topography. So they applied this grid on top of Toronto's very varied landscape. And earlier when there was not as advanced road technology, you would have roads that wound down the ravines and back up and because the span of the bridges was impossible. And though the remnants of roads like that still exist in the city, they're called like Old Young, Old Dundas, they're, they still hug the ravine topography. But as soon as the Toronto's big building boom in the 50s and 60s, they had the technology to build these ravine spanning bridges. And the effect is you have the city at one level, at the top level, and all the ravines are sunken below. So you can navigate the city without ever knowing that you're crossing a valley. Anne Michaels, one of my favorite authors who writes about Toronto, calls them sunken gardens. And I always think of that. So I think just like where we have the ravines are stacked, the odds are stacked against them that people know that they exist because of the just the form of the city. And then when it comes to, in many ways, the dawn is more important to Toronto's entire history than it's interesting like the dawn is more important to toronto's industrial history whereas the humber is more important to toronto's like long deep history so toronto is named after tacaranto which is the fishing weirs the trees that were sunk in the water and there was this whole mechanism to catch fish between Lake Kuchiching and Lake Simcoe, which is about an hour's drive north of Toronto now. And so that was referred to in Mohawk as Takaranto. And that name kind of traveled down this path, the Toronto Carrying Place Trail, and that followed what's now known as the Hum. So, you know, that was the original highway in this region. It was the reason it was a gathering place. It was a reason many Indigenous cultures gathered here. And yet, even though it is the arguably the most important site in the city of Toronto, the trailhead for the Toronto Caring Place Trail is marked by a gas station and very little signage. It's like just totally forgotten as a, I don't know how many people you would talk to would know about the Caring Place Trail and that, how fundamental it is to the history of the city. Whereas the Don, John Simcoe, the governor general of Upper Canada, put the Toronto where it was because of the kind of protective bay of Toronto Island. And he put in the little nook between where the island at the time met the city and the Don River. And that was, and then the Don was very much exploited for industry and became a cesspool backwater. And I'm sure you talked about that with Jennifer Pinnell and her fantastic book. But I guess that they're both forgotten different ways. I do remember giving a walking tour to an international group of the dawn and we we started at Corktown Common and I kept on referring to the river over here, like in the river. And then one, one man rose his hand and said, you keep on talking about a river, but I haven't seen it. So it, yeah, it's, I think it's by virtue of the natural geography that our rivers aren't mighty in Toronto. We, they're not the St. Lawrence, they're not the Columbia. They're not, they're these kind of pithy rivers. There's a term that I'm forgetting, but it basically refers to the fact that like the rivers used to be bigger and the valleys are indicative of the fact that they used to be these gushing glacial rivers, but now they're much smaller than the valley would indicate. But that doesn't mean that they're not powerful because it took until 19... 
20 to build the first permanent connection across the Don Valley. People tried to make bridges there for years and years, and they kept on being washed out by spring floods and silts and sand. So it's, they're mighty in this, in this kind of low key subterranean way. Yeah, which I think lends that and the kind of the sense that they disappear or can be crossed over without being seen lends something else to, I don't know, a kind of mystique about them. I was curious if you would talk a little bit about how you frame the work that you do as a as a geographer, as an artist, and maybe I thought you could talk a little bit about the language of proposals that you use and the kind of visioning or re-envisioning of some of the urban spaces. So I'm a visual artist, illustrator, cartographer, writer, and a lot of my work is more conceptually driven. So it's like I have a concept and depending on the most effective way to communicate it, that determines the, the medium, materiality, and a lot. I'm a populist artist. I try and communicate to as many people as possible. And I go back to what a map is. And that kind of really inspires me on what my other non-cartographic art projects are. But a map, as, as we know, is an abstraction of reality. You can't put everything in the world on a map. Otherwise, it would be it would render it totally meaningless. So you have to make choices. And you're also in those choices when you're making the map, you're enlarging things that are you're trying to emphasize and indicate this is what this map is about. So a road map that the map that we're all the most used to on Google Maps is real distortion of reality that emphasizes the road network. But that's what's important for the map. And that's what's most prominent. So I, in the realm of art mapping, want to take that logic and taking the the assumption that maps always lie, maps are never telling the truth, and we're always distorting reality as we try and communicate because we're pointing out what's important. What is important to me, it's like the rivers, the, the natural ecology, the places that are important to us. So in the maps that I make, they're purposefully out of scale. I call it to emotional scale, not scientific scale. And I really, if you look at a, a Google map, the river is this like tiny thin line. And it's, there's so much disrespect to that river by rendering it so small that you wouldn't even see it on the Google map. So I intentionally make them bigger. I intentionally exaggerate the the topography of the ravines. If you were to do it to scale, it wouldn't really look that impressive to you if you were looking at it on Google 3D maps. but the feeling of being in a ravine is like towering. You're the smallest thing there. You're overwhelmed by the size of the world around you. So that's what I'm trying to communicate through my maps and my work at large. With that campaign that you mentioned, the grassroots social media campaign, hashtag actually a C. So that's, there's a sense of humor here and there's a, but there's also a passion and a realness to my, to my drive here is to start referring to the quote unquote great lakes as seas because they when you stand on the edge of any of the great lakes it feels like this infinite blue infinite water like the word lake doesn't describe the feeling of being at the edge of a great lake even the word great doesn't define it and the idea there is the word sea doesn't have a technical definition it's more of a cultural word and you can look to the caspian sea the sea of galilee those are examples salton of sea. pardon me salton sea the salton sea yeah exactly which is different because of its 
it became salty. And so that people were like, it's salty, so it's a sea. But I'm here to tell you salt water does not make a sea. What makes a sea is a cultural myth. And by in a earnest but satirical way suggesting, hey, let's rename these. Can we even do that? Who, who gets to determine what we call things? It's about reminding people of the power of these waters, the infiniteness of them, our relationship to them. The, the awe we feel with them. And it's also just calling into question, just again, like the colonial legacies who named the Great Lakes. When the French first got here, they called them sweet seas, mer douce. They've referred to constantly in literature and poetry as seas. In Anishinaabe Moen, it's called, what's it called? Gichigami, which is like big water. It's, it's let's reorient ourselves to language and language suggests language frames relationships. And as our relationship with like Ontario is one that has been marred by neglect and it's been an industrial outflow and with the sewer system, I know the city's fixing the combined sewer outfalls. So no longer will our untreated sewage just drop into the rivers and lakes, but it's been that way up until now and for a few more years. And just even, I think, as the city really blossoms in its post-industrial era, you can see that everyone's hugging the lake in, in a way that they weren't before. It was like the Gardner Expressway cut people off. But there's we just have to remind ourselves Toronto is a city by the sea. And, that, and even saying that is like an invitation to imagine a different a relationship. I love this. I was talking with like Jay Havens about that and whether the kind of idea of the lake is a colonial imposition and a very strange one too, because even if these are all names that are relative to other other spaces, like who comes to a body of water that large and says, oh, that's a lake, right? Because it doesn't make yeah, sense. Yeah, the word lake I see as something that's domesticatable. Like right. can, right. you have power over mm-hmm. it, but Lake Ontario can and will eat you if it gets the chance. Like <laughs> you, we have to be careful. And of course there are some days where it's exceedingly calm. There's like, a, I'm on the island on a beach. I'm the only person there and I can't hear anything. And that's like, the seas that we know don't, are never like that. So they're their own special bodies of water, but it's a tongue in cheek way of provoking thought about, okay, what is this thing? And it's, uh, it's minimally tidal, I think, uh, or it's not really tidal, but it does have some kind of a, it's an ebb and flow. It's a, I've heard this the bathtub analogy and also it's wind based. So the wind yeah. will push the water. And so, the, uh, and also it's seasonally. So in the winter, the water is much stormier and higher, and then it goes out in the summertime. So that's, that's there, there are rhythms that are outside of the ocean and the seas that we know that we can be more connected to the way the lake flows. In thinking about the kind of reframing and the power of art and poetry and the changing of language to reformat or reframe our experience of a place, I was curious to hear you talk a little bit about the development proposal Humbler site and something you started and what's the um, what's the intention of this piece. It's really fascinating. I was trying to figure out if this is real and if these are like real proposals. Development proposal was a project I did with my friend Mike Stahlberg where we, you know, kind of disgruntled over the planning process, the language of consultation and the language of city building felt it felt like there were all these huge proposals that were not really considering that they were landing in a city and that they needed to contribute to the city and so the driver of that was in toronto nothing is too sacred to be 
turned into a 90 story condo. And we think that was one of those moments where it's like, okay, here's the message. What's the medium? And, uh, we decided that pranking a city is still in style. And we we decided to create a series of spoof development proposals that get like exceedingly more absurd as you scroll through the website. So it starts with just regular Toronto house and there's a big tower there. And then it goes to more beloved institutions like University College, the iconic main building of U of T and Casa Loma. And then it gets more absurd to the point where it's a condo in the middle of City Hall, Rotunda, a condo on the Sky Dome. And part of this was really taking on that technocratic language of city planning and sub- subverting it in, in that way, just being like, this is absurd, look. And then some of the most absurd proposals were, like I said, the Sky Dome. And in, in the writing, it said that the Sky Dome's roof would remain closed during construction. There was the condo off the side of the CN Tower, a condo on a condo. <laughs> like, where can you put a condo on it? Feeling. And uh, yeah, we we did one, we built one real one. So uh, outside of the website and put it on the lawn of Old City Hall, which is a Richardsonian Romanesque, beautiful building, a beloved institution. We said that a 90 story condo would go on top of it. The building would be turned into a parking garage and the front would be managed as a privately privately owned public space. And on the, we had all the technocratic information on that development proposal sign modeled after the cities and at the bottom where it usually says like for more information, it directed people to the Tumblr. And it really just like, People thought it was real. It spread like wildfire on social media. All the media outlets picked it up. Some news outlets even created animations showing how the condos would be growing out of these buildings. So uh, me and Mike employed some people that day, <laughs> gave them some work. And uh, yeah, it was really, it really provoked this amazing discussion about the state of development in Toronto and what it means to be invited into the process and what it means to be left out. And what was interesting about that is at the time, there were these latent discussions amongst the urbanist community on Twitter and otherwise about like, the problems plaguing Toronto. And in my critique of this like hyper development, it became known in the discussion that it, the problem was that so much of the city is actually protected from development, what we call the yellow belt. So it's like single family homes and like they're a fortress of protection that doesn't allow any development to happen. And it's basically the power of the homeowner in Toronto. And then so all the development actually concentrates to these main streets, formerly industrial sites. And that's why you get these, it's like the stress ball, you squeeze it in one way and then it all comes out in the other. And so that was a really interesting project because I entered it with a mix of heartfelt frustration and I put something out there and did the project got critiqued because they're like, it's not about too much. It's not about there not being enough consultation. It's that there's too much in the wrong places, like in, in terms of the homeowners. So that was a really wild ride to float a project, put it into the public space, have it go viral and then have a conversation evolve around it. It's really amazing. I think one of the things that just I loved is just how vague and generic a lot of the language is. Like you, uh-huh. you have this sense that there's this kind of like public declaration being made, but it, it's not really saying anything. And of course, just how much the context matters of like where this is being put, which only starts to emerge as you see these kind of absurd 
little drawings illustrating what that language yeah. actually would mean or yeah yeah one of our critiques was it's like it you're pretending it's an invitation to be part of a conversation but it's not so let's play with that and then i had a follow-up which was a subversion of this or inversion which was taking like really sexy renderings of condos doing the like f heritage facade retention but rather than it being like these old historic victorian edwardian structures it was like these beloved but dumpy institutions like johnny's burgers and uh like the dairy queen on lakeshore and etobicoke and like a burger shack and just like places that you wouldn't ascribe capital H heritage value to, but are actually arguably more important to preserve. And so just like the absurdity of suggesting that like you take these architectures and put them on the podium of a condominium. And, but then to me, that's what's actually important in the city. It's not this built heritage. It's like the living heritage. I think we have that issue here where something that has a great deal of significance to a neighborhood or to a community, there's not a landmarks designation that would preserve that site and preserve that site as like a working site more than even just like a fragment or a kind of a, say like a leftover memorial or monument to that site. So part of what we're exploring around the dawn is at this particular moment, they're moving the mouth of the river half a kilometer out into the lake and thinking about maybe, as you're saying, like propensity to, to not remember or to kind of lose certain parts of the city's history because something else comes along and replaces it. We've kind of been asking, what does a map of the dawn look like now? What are the stories that are contained within it? And, uh, and so I thought maybe to talk to you a bit about your your mapping practice and also to bring you to the dawn into the Portlands and what does it mean to be engineering this new river and what do you think is the role of language or of map making or of a geographer or of an artist kind of at this particular moment as this area is undergoing such tremendous change? Yeah, I think that there's the, a role of the artist at the very least as archiver and contributor to that public memory. I know a painter friend of mine, Stefan Berg, who's documenting the dawn in the Portlands and the Leslie Spitz through this moment, not systematically, but incidentally. And yeah, just I think it's like a it's an opportunity to resist like I think it's a positive thing that's happening that the this new configuration of the river will be better for the river, the health of the river itself. It will be healthier for the, it will be better for the health of the bay. It will be better for the health of the water quality. It will have more access and invitation, but then, but like in this moment of change, it's our tendency to like have that willingness to forget. So what in this moment where we're looking at both sides of that we have the past and the future really clearly marked in this one moment and that the landscape is going to is currently significantly changing how can what are methods for resisting amnesia at this one moment and i don't have the answer but i think public programming such as what you're doing and telling the stories and writing them down and creating evocative visuals and just inviting people to not forget that like this is something they should care about in terms of language something about this project that's interesting and inspired by thoughts by Jennifer Bonnell. I don't think she talked about it that much, but the fact that the current plan for the Don River is so tied to land economics, it's this massive rerouting of a river, but what is the impetus? It's so that development can occur in a floodplain, right? So this is the first 
thing they have to do. So the first thing they did was build Corktown Commons, which is a giant berm that a park is on top of. So that, that made those lands, the West Don lands, developable. And then this river, they're building this whole flooding infrastructure. So they literally can't build and develop and subdivide and extract wealth without doing this. So I think that's important to foreground more. Like, I don't think it makes it not worth doing. And I'm a pragmatic person. And I think, okay, our whole, like, the whole DNA of the city is tied to like land economic subdivision and speculation. So let's get some good stuff out of that without being too apathetic. <laughs> but I think that needs to be talked about a bit more in terms of the story. I think Waterfront Toronto is really hamming up the ecological side without being honest about the reason we're doing this. And, and the flip side of that is we need to be building a city where people can live. We need more housing. We need more places for them to live. So it's complicated, but I don't ever appreciate just like focusing on one side and forgetting the rest because I feel like people can sniff like disingenuineness and like, why not talk about the whole package and the complexity of this whole project in relation to the housing crisis and the need for housing and the profit from this land. Another linguistic opportunity for arts and interpretation is the word re-naturalization. Yeah, we're not, we're not re-naturalizing, we're making a new nature. And we, the Don, it was the largest freshwater marsh on the Great Lakes, something like that. And there was this fear of miasma and airborne illness on swamp, stinky swamp waters. And in the summer when I'm in the woods camping and there are mosquitoes everywhere, I often think like, I get why they paved the port, the marsh at the Don River, like this sucks. But so we're not returning to that nature. We're making a new nature. And I don't think that's a problem, but I do think that it leads us in the wrong place at the end of it. Like why talk about it in these terms? And I think Jennifer Bennell spoke about the word renaturalization in there the final chapter of her amazing book, Reclaiming the Dawn. Yeah, I think 100%. I think the uh, that question around, like, what does renaturalizing mean? And if you're thinking about, like, the Portlands as it currently exists is also about, or as it existed, since it's... Um, kind of industrial uses and development are as far from that original nature as possible. It's like there's this idea of a return that we'll never get to and that distracts us from doing the best we can do with the current setup. People care about this place in many ways and can have complicated conversations and think that it's good to it's good to focus on ecology and, and foreground that but then there are other layers like affordability access to arts space and production indigenous decolonization like why are we hyper focused on the one thing when if we just softened our message we could like make room for other things at this point it's hard to justify I'm working on this in a few ways but like there's so few spaces of production for artists in the city and they're all leaving and like i'm not talking about little studios i'm talking about like studios you can drive your truck into and flood and weld in but there's the versus studio which maybe you've heard of and then there's max dean's studio who's still operating right beside the rebel nightclub as they call it these days and then there's the it's the silo it was the rooster squat and that was like also the site of the tent city toronto's biggest tent city which is just north of the portlands west where like it's a big construction site right now but just near the silos there that is a longer history of displacement but it's like these lands have been intentionally vacated for this next phase of their development for a while there's no blank slate This is Don River Radio. I'm Dylan Gauthier. 
Our collective is Marley Barham. You can find us at thefreeseas.org. Our project is dawnriverradio.ca. We're hosted by Evergreen Brickworks in Waterfront, Toronto, and supported by Artworks TO Year of Public Art. Our audio engineer is Tom Upjohn. Music by John Tarr. Special thanks to our collaborators Shannon Gerard and Maria Hupfield, curators Charlene Lau, Chloe Catan, and Carrie Swinar. <laughs>